Do you hear that? Green tree, do you hear that? It's, it's silence. It's silence. Silence can say something to us. Silence can be comforting. Every parent who has had young children knows what it's like when you put that squirmy worm to bed at the end of a long day and you can go into that child's room later on and you hear silence, perhaps just with the exception of some soft breathing. It's one of the most comforting sounds of silence that anyone can experience. Then there's another kind of silence that is uncomfortable. So you went out on a date last week. You had a great time. You thought the other person had a great time. And a week has passed. And you've heard nothing. That's uncomfortable. Or you've been to a job interview. No, you've been through five job interviews for this job that you really, really want. And there's no job offer. That's an uncomfortable silence. Now, I want you to imagine a 400-year silence. That was Israel's experience with God. In the period between Abraham all the way down through the Old Testament to Malachi, who wrote the last book of the Old Testament, God had been in regular communication with his people. With his people. He'd entered into history. He had spoken through the prophets And now things went silent for 400 years after Malachi. What was Israel to make of this? Were they to conclude that God was done with them? And then God reopened the conversation. And he did it in the oddest way. It was through the birth of a baby. This morning as we begin the Advent season, we're going to look at two verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're going to look at these with two questions in mind. First, why did Jesus come when he did? And secondly, why was Jesus born at all? What was God's purpose in Jesus? So, the scripture will be up on the screen, it will be in your bulletin, and we can read along together. So, here's Paul's words, Paul's words. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this weekend. We thank you for the time to be with loved ones, to eat well, and to express our gratitude to you for your provision for us. Now, Lord, as we are together, we pray that we would continue to be grateful as we remember the great magnitude of what you've done in sending your Son. Amen. Well, the birth of Christ could hardly have been more obscure. He came from a backwater section of a backwater country, far from any seat of power. He had no family ties that would help him influence the world. He had no position, no possessions, no money to speak of. He gathered around him 12 working class guys before he died the death of a common criminal. So this is hardly the stuff that Hollywood press agents dream of, right? And yet from this simple beginning came the worldview that is held by much of the world. 
How do we explain this? Well, there's an expression that timing is everything. And it's Paul's claim this morning that Christ came when the time had fully come, or we might say it differently, at just the right moment. God had been preparing the world for the coming of Christ for close to 2,000 years, and he had done it by preparing the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans, a good bit of the known world at that time. So let's talk about that for just a little while. First, God was at work in the people of Israel. God called Abraham, and then he made himself known to Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, and he promised a Messiah. He gave Israel prophecies to know what the Messiah would be like. And by one count, there were 300 of those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled in Christ. But there was another aspect to the way that God was at work in the Jews, and that is that Israel's greatest catastrophe led to the spread of the gospel. About 600 years before Christ was born, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. And many of the Israelites, including some of the leading families, were taken out of Israel and back to Babylon. And they stayed there for 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, they were free to go. They could go wherever they wanted. Some of those people went back to Israel. But many of those Jews who had been in Babylon dispersed all around the Mediterranean. And they went to many cities. Now, wherever they went, they took with them their faith and their scriptures. And in every town where there were 10 or more Jewish men, they started a synagogue. Up here on the screen, you'll see the ruins of a synagogue that was from before the time of Christ. This one is in a suburb of Rome. And synagogues like this were scattered all around the Mediterranean Sea. Secondly, God was at work in the Greeks. About 300 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered much of the world. And where his army went, Greek thought, Greek commerce, Greek literature, and Greek language also went. And Greek became the common language of the Mediterranean. So everywhere that there were Jews in those synagogues, they began to attract Gentiles who spoke Greek. They were attracted to the monotheism and the high ethical standard of Yahweh, the Old Testament God. But they didn't understand the scriptures in Hebrew. So there was a group of 70 scholars who put together a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. You'll see here one of the pages from one of our earliest copies of the Old Testament, but you'll see it isn't in Hebrew. This is in Greek. So that meant that in every one of these towns where there was a synagogue, there were Gentiles who were being prepared to hear the gospel because they now had available to them the Old Testament in their own language and those 300 prophecies in a language that they could understand. And then finally, God was also at work in Rome. The Romans ruled the Mediterranean at the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire had been racked by civil wars and wars with other nations for many years until 31 B.C. And in that year, Octavius defeated Anthony and Cleopatra, and, they, and he ushered in a period of a couple centuries that's called, sometimes referred to as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And the Romans cleaned out the pirates, and they cleaned out the outlaws, and they built roads. And their intention 
was that their armies could get to wherever they needed them as quickly as possible. This is, this is a photograph of one of those Roman roads as it looks today. This is the Appian Way. And so the Romans prepared these roads with the idea that they could move armies, but the people who moved on those roads were missionaries. So you can see that all around the world, the result of this was that there was a safe and efficient means of transportation, there was a common language, there was a lot of thought held in common, there was a place in all of these various towns to meet, the synagogue. And there were people in every one of these towns, Jewish and Gentile, who were prepared to hear the message of Christ. Isn't it amazing how all those things came together? Is it just a coincidence? Or is Paul right when he says, when the time had fully come, you see, at just the right moment, Christ came. So prepared for what? If God sent his son at just the right time, what was his purpose? Why did he send him? Starting this morning and until Christmas Eve, we're going to do a series called Shattering the Silence. For what purpose did God shatter the silence? For what purpose did he send his son into the world? And we'll see in the series that God acted through his son to do a number of things, to end lies and to bring truth, to end alienation and provide relationship, to end fear and give us courage, to put to death the grave and to give us life. And this morning, we're going to talk about one aspect of what God did in shattering the silence, which is the idea of redemption and how the captivity of Jesus brings us liberty. So if you look at our passage this morning, it says that God sent his son to redeem. So what does that mean, to redeem? We have, a, we have kind of a common usage of redeem, which kind of means something along the lines of things were going badly and then they got a lot better. Somebody who was down and out succeeded. Somebody who was a loser became a winner. That's common parlance, and in that sense, there is a story of redemption in the National Football League this year. Uh, Michael Vick was a quarterback who was an all-pro, and um, he was arrested and put in prison for a couple of years in federal prison. And uh, he was out of football completely. This year, he's back. He's playing at a very high level. He's the top-rated quarterback in the National Football League, and he seems to have his life together off the field as well. And so in the common parlance... Michael Vick's story is a story of redemption. But Paul has something more specific in mind here. Paul has used a particular word which has a particular meaning, and that is that Paul is describing the slave market and buying someone out of that slave market. How do we know this? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, in the context around this verse, which I haven't given you this morning, Paul is talking about slavery. And secondly, more specifically, in this verse, the word that Paul uses for redeem, or that we translate as redeem, really means literally to buy out of the marketplace. Slavery would have been well known to Paul's readers. About one-sixth of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. In the ancient world, slavery was not race-based. Most people fell into slavery either because their nation was conquered or because they were overtaken by debt, and so they were sold to pay off their debt. Some slaves lived very well. They might live as tutors, or they might serve in the household of some wealthy people, 
but there was also horrible, miserable slavery, the kind of slavery where people worked in the mines deep and dark away, or they might row galley ships. No matter what your status was, good or poor, as a slave, you could be redeemed from slavery by a third party who was willing to pay the price of your redemption. And that is the idea that Paul is talking about here. The best picture we have of this is in the Old Testament. There is an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. God told Hosea that he should marry Gomer, a woman who would be unfaithful to him. And God used the marriage as a picture of God's steadfast love and a picture of redemption. After they were married, Gomer left Hosea for other men. And she fell into slavery, presumably because of debt. The climax of the story comes when God tells Hosea to go to the slave market and to buy Gomer back. And I can imagine what an uncomfortable position this would have been. Here's a prophet, and he's in the flesh pits. This would have been, I think, hard for Hosea, really hard. But the auctioneer starts the bidding. Somebody over here calls out 12 pieces of silver. Hosea raises his hand and says 13 pieces of silver. Somebody over here calls out 14 pieces of silver. Hosea bids 15 pieces of silver. Somebody says 15 pieces of silver and 10 bushels of barley. Hosea raises his hand and says 15 pieces of silver and 15 bushels of barley. And there are no more bids. And the auctioneer looks around and he says that Hosea has bought his wife back. He has redeemed her. Now he was entitled to do anything that he wanted with her. After all, her adultery was a capital offense. And she was a slave and she had humiliated him in the most excruciating ways possible. But he just says to her, you are not, you are to live with me many days. You should be faithful to you and I will be faithful to you. So in the same way God has redeemed us, if we get the picture of Hosea and Gomer, we know who we are. We're the slave on the auction block. We have not been faithful to God, but God has been faithful to us. God has sent His Son for this very purpose, to redeem us, not at the price of 15 pieces of silver and 15 bushels of barley, but by the blood of His own Son. This brings us to the last clause of our scripture this morning. God has redeemed us for a purpose. Paul says that God sent his son to redeem that we might receive the full rights of sons. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means. What are the full rights of sons? And there are, there are more possibilities here than we could possibly talk about in our short time this morning. Because God has re- redeemed us, we are in right relationship to God. Because we're in right relationship to God, we can pray to God. Because we are, are part of a spiritual family, we will be assured of eternal life. There's a whole list of things that we could talk about. But to me at the moment, there are two most important consequences to my redemption. And those are that I am redeemed from the penalty of sin and from the 
power of sin. What do we mean by those things? Well, David talks about both of these things in the Psalms. David wrote in Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. David wrote Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba and after he had arranged for Bathsheba's Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be killed in battle. And David knows that he needs to be washed from the penalty of sin. David also says in Psalm 51 that God is right when he passes sentence and that God is blameless when he judges. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer or perhaps you don't know if you're a believer, or perhaps you're just curious. Perhaps a family member brought you here because it's the holiday weekend. You should know that this is the beginning of a relationship with God. Every Christian has to agree with God that he or she is a sinner, that he or she needs to be cleansed from sin, and that Christ's work of redemption buys us back from the penalty of sin. So I'd like to encourage you this morning that if you've never known this, if you've never trusted Christ to redeem you from the penalty of sin, you could do that this morning. But there's also a second aspect of Christ's work as Redeemer that we need to know, and that is that Christ has redeemed us from the power of sin in our lives. So David writes about this in Psalm 19. He says, "'Who can discern their own errors?' Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May, that not, may they not rule over me. So first David acknowledges that there are sins that he commits that he's not even aware of. And he asks God, please, to forgive those. And then he says, keep me from, keep your servant, keep, keep me from willful sins, willful disobedience. And then finally he says, May they not rule, may may they, both my hidden sins and my known sins, may they not rule over me. Lord, please don't let my sin have dominion over me. Please don't let my sin have control over me. I think that a lot of us have kind of a two-track view of sin. I think there there are certain sins that we all know about, that we all recognize and we know we shouldn't do, right? This is along the lines of, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do, right? Everybody knows there's a checklist, and you are to keep those checkboxes empty, void. This is mostly the idea of Christianity as what we refrain from. But there's another whole level that we don't care so much about. Those are what I would describe as respectable sins or comfortable sins. There are things that, are, that we just sort of do and we don't worry too much about. So there is, for instance, the jealousy of the success of somebody else. You may know that person and think, I'm just as good as that person. I don't understand the success, and you resent it greatly. There is the kind of anger which you think is a righteous anger and that you are entitled to, but when you really look at it closely, it's just that your pride has been hurt. There is fear, not the kind of rational, real fear 
that, we, that you should have and that is healthy, but the kind of fear that really stems from a distrust of the goodness of God to you. And so you're fearful about what's going to happen because you don't really trust that God has your best interests in mind. There are all kinds. There's relationships that fall into certain repeated patterns, dysfunctional patterns, and you pretty much can predict how the relationship, how the conversation is going to go, and you really could change it, but the patterns are so deep that they don't change. And there's a whole list of these kinds of things. Selfishness, addictive behavior, judgmentalism, all the rest. These are comfortable sins that we think we can just live with. They're deeply rooted in us. Sometimes they've been set in childhood, these patterns. They've evolved over many years in a relationship. And so we just roll along with these comfortable sins because changing would be so hard. But there is a cost to all sin, including comfortable sin and forgiven sin. Sin damages our relationship with God. It hardens our hearts and makes us less human. Sin frequently hurts other people. And it's off-putting to the rest of the world who ought to see the image of God in us but doesn't. I said earlier that this is important to me. It's one of the things I wanted to talk about this morning. And the, the reason for that in part is that for the last several months I have grappling, been grappling with one of my own respectable sins, one of my own comfortable sins. I'm not going to tell you the details. I don't need to embarrass you or me. But you need to know that over the last several months, something happened in my life so that I absolutely had to come face to face with one of these respectable sins, and I had to deal with it. So I had to do several things. First of all, I had to go to the person whom I had hurt, and I had to apologize. And then I went to two of my good friends who were also spiritual mentors to me, and I told them what I had done. And I did that because I knew that I needed to change and I wanted them to hold me accountable to change. And then I sought out some people over a longer period of time who know me well, who, who know me over a longer period of time to try and sit down and figure out what it is about me that caused me to do what I had done. It, it was painful, but it was necessary. But none of these things that I did really get to the most basic question, which lies behind all this, which is, can I change? Can I be different? Am I stuck with my old patterns and my old ways of thinking so that I cannot get myself or see myself out of this comfortable and respectable sin? And this is where I get to preach the gospel to myself. Paul says that the work of Christ in redemption is so that we can receive the full rights of sons. Christ's work of redemption was sufficient both for the penalty of sin and for the power of sin. God wants us to bear a family resemblance. He says here that we receive the full rights of sons, and that means that we should look like our Father. So because Christ has redeemed me from the power of sin, I know that my actual conduct can be different. Is there some area of your life which you would say, you continue on in comfortable sin. Few of us get through life without some area that is hard for us, hard to change, but we know we really ought to have change. It's deep-seated. We feel like we're stuck. But I want to encourage you this morning that you are not stuck. 
you are free to change if Christ is your redeemer because he overcomes both the penalty and the power of sin. There's one last word I want to look at in our scripture this morning. It's that word receive. See that word? Paul says we must receive redemption. So I'll ask you this morning, do you think that you are in need of a redeemer? Do you need to receive redemption? I'd ask you please to, um, well, we'll talk a little bit about somebody who I think understood the need for a redeemer. And we're going to do that by looking at a painting. We did this once before, and I hope you'll indulge me again. It's a painting by a painter named Caravaggio. And um, in order to understand the painting, I think you have to first understand a little bit about Caravaggio. So I'm going to show you part of a BBC program about the painter Caravaggio, and this is the way that he's portrayed in the BBC show. Caravaggio was born in the late 1500s. His father died when he was five. His mother died when he was 19. Caravaggio, the orphan, headed off to Rome, and he promptly sank into the deep end of the cesspool. Caravaggio was a drinker and a gambler and a womanizer and a brawler. Court records show that he was arrested for slandering another painter, a rival painter. He was also arrested for assaulting a waiter over the way his artichokes were cooked. A court note says about Caravaggio that Caravaggio will work for a couple weeks. He will swagger about for a month or two with a sword at his side and a servant with him, ever ready to engage in a fight or an argument so that it is most awkward to get along with him. He is a seething rage, ready to go off at any moment. But the man could paint. He mastered a technique of light and darkness that provided drama. He portrayed real emotions. His paintings were earthy. Frequently his disciples were dirty and dead saints turned green with decay. He used street people for his models. So well-known gamblers might show up as the face of an apostle in a painting. And he might use a Madonna. He might paint a Madonna using a prostitute as his model. But because of his painting, he was acclaimed right up until the night that he got in a duel with a man, another man over a woman, and he killed this man. And for the rest of his life, he had a price on his head. He fled Rome for Naples first and then to Malta, and within a year, he was dead. So this morning, we're going to look at one of the paintings that Caravaggio painted. It's in your, it's in your bulletin, the little postcard there. You can watch it on screen. There are, the painting is called The Taking of Christ, and it is the description of the arrest of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are seven figures here in the dark. We're going to start on our left and move across. This is one of the disciples who screams in terror and flees. Usually this is thought to be John. And then there is Christ. You see his hands are still folded, perhaps still in prayer. His eyes are cast down. He doesn't need to know who approaches. He knows. And his brow is furrowed with sorrow. Then we see Judas draw near to kiss Christ. 
And then there are three soldiers, one far in the back here. And the action takes place right here. This is, after all, titled The Taking of Christ. And so you see two arms. You see first the arm of Judas, which comes here. And it's that warm peach color that looks friendly. And he takes the shoulder of Christ to draw him close for a kiss. But we know that this is not a kiss of friendship. This is a kiss of treachery and deceit. And then there is the arm of one of the guards. And you see it's here. It's, he's clad in metal. And the metal glints perhaps in the moonlight. This is not an arm of warmth. This is an inhuman arm. This is an arm of violence. And it closes on the throat of Christ. And then there's one more figure here. This figure back here. You see he stands sort of on tiptoe to see what's happening. And this is his hand. And his hand holds a lantern which is partly obscured by the helmet of the soldier. And this is Caravaggio. He's painted himself into the painting. And we have to wonder why. Did he run out of models? I don't think so. This is a very deliberate choice. I think there are a couple reasons Caravaggio has placed himself in the painting. One is that he sees himself as the one who holds the lantern. After all, he is the painter here, right? And he is the one who's bringing this scene to light. And so he wants us to see it. We may want to turn away. We may not want to look on this scene of treachery and violence. But Caravaggio makes us look at it because he's the painter and because, because he holds the light. But I think there's more here. There's something more personal here. Caravaggio has placed himself in this painting in a particular place. Caravaggio has placed himself right in among the treacherous and the violent. I think that Caravaggio knows himself. He knows what kind of man he is, and he knows that he's a man of violence. He's been in more fights than he can count. And Caravaggio knows that he has betrayed God. God has given him this great gift. But Caravaggio knows that he has betrayed God by the way that he has lived his life. So Caravaggio knows the cost of what he has done, and he reminds himself and he reminds us of that cost. I, uh, I think that in some ways Caravaggio is the kind of person who makes me feel good about myself. After all, I'm not a, a womanizer or a brawler or a gambler. The last time I was in a fight was in the sixth grade. But Caravaggio knows something about himself that I may miss. Caravaggio has no illusions. He knows he's not a nice man. He knows that his niceness won't save him. Caravaggio knows he needs a redeemer. Caravaggio knows that the only way that he can be free of his sin is if Christ is taken. Caravaggio reminds us that the taking of Christ was for my liberty. That Christ was taken so that I could be free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. How about you this morning? 
Are you in need of a redeemer? You see, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem us so that we could have the full rights of sons. Let's pray together.